Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. As you may remember, a few episodes ago, I announced that Staffer landed its first sponsor, Wash U at Brookings, the executive education program specifically tailored for those who work in and with government. Their sponsorship means the world to me. It really does. Wash U at Brookings is for staffers and those who work with staffers. And so is this podcast. So for the first time, you'll hear me pause our conversation for a break or two. Now, Turning to the subject of today's episode, I am really happy to present my conversation with Anthony Ruggiero. Anthony is currently a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, but prior to this, he was a foreign policy staffer for nearly 20 years. His expertise and focus have been on one of the most challenging matters in the world, a nuclear-armed North Korea and nonproliferation writ large. Anthony's career has taken him from the State Department to the Treasury Department and from Capitol Hill to the White House. His most recent government experience was in the Trump White House, where he served as Deputy Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs and the National Security Council Senior Director for Counterproliferation and Biodefense. Anthony and I recorded this episode on Friday, October 29th. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, brought to you by Wash U at Brookings. Anthony Ruggiero, welcome to Staffer. Well, thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be here, and uh, this is a uh, great concept, and I enjoy the podcast, so I'm, I'm grateful to be here. Well, I'm, I'm really excited uh, to talk with you today because your background is unlike a lot of the folks who I've been able to talk with as part of this podcast. Um, but before we get into the professional side, I like to start at the beginning with people. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what your family was like. Uh, yeah, I grew up in uh, Woodhaven, uh, Queens, New York. Uh, so in uh, New York City, uh, I, uh, you know, I, uh, my, my family, uh, we were not not as much into politics. Uh, you know, my father, but public service is an important part of part of this. And uh, you know, my 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 father has uh, worked at the post office for quite quite a number of years. My mother uh, was a st- mostly a stay at home stay at home mom and. Uh, you know, but growing up in New York City was definitely a, a, a different environment than most people are exposed to. Uh, uh, you know, so so I have that. Uh, you know, I have, I'm a Yankees fan, which uh, sometimes you know some people like to comment on. Uh, but uh, all right, I'm yeah. glad to hear that you're in good company here. Good. I'm a Yankees I think fan you, also. I think I remember you saying that 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 maybe <laughs> you're you you also like myself. My wife is a Red Sox fan, so. That's right. Uh, yeah, it's a unique the struggle is real, Anthony. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, but that's you know my my original plan was to to become a lawyer, go to law school, and uh, uh, I went to went to college, and uh, and then I realized that uh, I enjoyed international affairs more than than the law, and uh, I changed paths uh, really in my junior year. I think it was my junior year, and. Uh, at, at, at the university and uh, definitely, uh, you know, better for it. Uh, you know, I didn't spend uh, $100,000 or whatever it would have been at that time uh, to not practice law. Uh, no offense to those who did, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I at least made that decision early on. I, I'm, I'm still paying uh, back my law school loan. Uh, <laughs> but let me uh, follow up on that moment because you came to international affairs during college. Uh, my my guest on last week's show, Mona Sutven, had sort of the same journey. She sort of discovered foreign affairs while an undergraduate, and 
she, like you, has had a career in it. What was the turning point for you? Like, was it a class? Was it a professor? Was it a book? Yeah, I think it was a class and a professor. Uh, you know, we were talking about uh, you know uh, much of what I've devoted my career to, you know, uh, nuclear weapons uh, proliferation. Uh, those issues uh, spoke to me. Uh, when I decided not to go to law school, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do uh, with my life. Uh, you know, I, I think for those of us who have been in in, in this uh, field, we know there are many jobs that are out there, but uh, as someone who was the one of the first to go to college, uh, you know, I think uh, lawyer and doctor was sort of the uh, the, the pathway. And, and and when I I certainly wasn't going to be a doctor based on some of my science grades, uh, I, I you know, and then decided not to be a lawyer. I, I sort of had the scramble and try and figure out. I also I also knew that I did not want to uh, go and, and get a PhD or, or, or be a professor I knew that was not my path. Uh, and I, I, uh, I, I went to school in Pittsburgh, uh, under, you know, undergrad in, in Pittsburgh and, uh, and eventually was admitted to the university of Pittsburgh, which has a, a great international affairs program. They have a great public affairs program too, but, uh, I was lucky in that way where I, I enjoyed the city and, and was able to stay for two more years and, and get the degree. So you finish your undergraduate years, you get your master's at the University of Pittsburgh. Your first job uh, was at the State Department as a North Korea nuclear and missile, and missile analyst. How did you get from Pittsburgh into the State Department? Yeah, the North Korea job was actually my third uh, in the sense that, uh, yeah, I started. So I, I, I was a, at the time it was called presidential management intern. Uh, now it's a fellow uh, program. Uh, and I joined government that way, which is a which is a, a pathway. You have to go through the evaluation process and uh, they choose more usually choose choose more finalists than there are jobs. And I got a job at the State Department and, the you know, it's part of what I you know, when I talk to uh uh, when I have career conversations with either individually or in group settings, you know, the job I took was uh, working in the operations center uh, for the intelligence bureau at the State Department. And, you know, I, I, I did every shift. So it was, uh, you know, uh, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., 4 p.m. to midnight and midnight to 8 a.m. And, and did quite a few of those. Uh, and, you know, there there are. It, you know, you're sifting through all this information and trying to, you know, alert people, especially, you know, after business hours, trying to alert them. Uh, so that was really my first job. It, well, certainly, I didn't go to grad school thinking that I was going to work in an operations center, reading, you know, hundreds of reports a, a day and trying to sift out the right one. But for me, it was the way to get into this this business. Uh, and then I had a, a, a sort of an interim job in between that one and then uh, I knew I wanted to work in the proliferation space, um, and they had a proliferation office. Uh, so I, I went to them and, and said, I'd like to come here. And at that time, the PM, PMI program, you have to do rotations. Uh, I think, I think you had to do two when I was there. And, and originally I was talking to them about doing a rotation. And then they said, well, actually, we have a job. Uh, if you want to sort of transfer your, uh, your, your, your stuff here. Um, so that sounds they, good. So that was, yeah, I was, I was, I was all, all in for that. 
um, and it was in the field that I wanted. And North Korea was one of the, one of the three choices, uh, and, and I, uh, I that that was my choice. <laughs> so, what were the other two? And how, like, how did that pitch come to you? Yeah, the other two were, were quite interesting. One was uh, fissile material trafficking, I think, and the other was global nuclear testing. So more in the arms control uh, space. And, uh, you know, at that time, North Korea, this was, uh, so what was this? This was uh, March, two, you know, I started in March 2001, if I'm recalling correctly um but you know that north korea was very different than it was than it is now it was a different uh subject but you know shortly after i started at um you know at, shortly after i started in that job uh we were in what what some would term the second nuclear crisis uh in in 2002 and that was definitely an interesting time to to be working on north korea and i've worked on north korea ever since uh for 20 years uh so, uh, you know, for, for all the good and bad that, that that comes with that. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Wash U at Brookings, executive education for those who work in and with government. Wash U at Brookings believes leadership development begins when you embrace a service-oriented, purpose-driven life. Become a leader equipped to make a positive and principled difference in your organization, community, and society at large. Find out more about Wash U at Brookings at olin.wustl.edu slash seminars. That's olin.wustl.edu slash seminars. All right, where were we? You chose North Korea. You were not a North Korea expert, and nor did you come to the table with a, you know, sort of a burning desire in, you know, to explore more with that particular country. How did you, and how do you deepen your expertise? You know, like, what do you read? Who do you talk to? How do you become an expert in a country? And I'm assuming you're not uh, a speaker of the language uh, either. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, you know you you have to uh, simultaneously uh, read everything that happened before, uh, right, and and get get a perspective. And everyone has their uh, their their own take on something. So you have to uh, you you have to uh, you know sort of assess uh, where people are coming from in terms of their 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 view of what happened before and. Uh, and then you know the, the the subject area is not stopping, right? So you have to actually do your job while you're trying to learn on that job. I mean, the one the, to me, the the one benefit I or I had many benefits, but one of the benefits I had was uh, you know Colin Powell was the Secretary of State at that time, uh, and and many of the people that came with him uh, were were in the senior leadership, including my leadership, and they were very interested in the subject. Uh, and, you know, I think one of the benefits of working in the intelligence bureau at the State Department is, uh, unlike other bureaus that sort of go through or report through undersecretaries, uh, that assistant secretary reports directly to the secretary. Um, and certainly there was a benefit because our assistant secretary had a relationship with Secretary Powell. But uh, when when it became a crisis, it, it, it provided a benefit where the assessments that I was writing was going, you know, directly to the secretary and and uh, and presumably was impacting policy policy decisions they were making. Uh, but yeah, it's a you know it's a subject area where you're I think you're always learning uh, 
you know, about North Korea and, and they've had three, you know, three leaders now, uh, well, three leaders, you know, since, since they're, uh, they became a country only two that I, since I've been working on it, but, you know, it, it certainly changes. Something's changed and something's saying this stay the same when it comes to North Korea. Uh, so, you know, I, I think you're always learning on a subject like that. Yeah. Well, you were, so you were at the state department for more than 13 years uh, you were elevated several times while there. Uh, you were briefly the North Korea policy officer and then elevated to chief of the defense measures slash proliferation finance team. And that's a position that you held for more than seven years. While there, you also covered different um, U.S. Uh, presidential administrations. Uh, you covered the terms of George W. Bush and the first term of President Obama. How did your role, your day-to-day change as you were elevated? And, you know, were there any changes between the administrations that were dramatic enough that they, you know, it impacted your work? Certainly, yeah. I, you know, when I first started in the government, uh, it was still the Clinton administration uh, through, yeah, so I started in October 99. So, uh, ah, okay. you know, the, all through the, the election cycle and, um, I was also, you know, I, I failed to mention uh, when I was on the the watch, as it's called, uh, I was on the four to midnight shift uh, during uh, the, the millennial turnover, right? Uh, the, the Y2K uh, that only some, some of us that are old enough to remember that. And uh, I was able to, you know, the, the interesting thing about being on that, that uh, time period, right, was you were able to see you know, uh, as, as people celebrated and, 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 you know, certainly if there was something that was going to go wrong, it was going to be, uh, pretty evident, uh, at that point. Um, and then, yeah, I, Disaster so averted. Right, exactly. So, I mean, I worked primarily on North Korea throughout the entire, uh, George W. Bush administration. Uh, you know, when I, when I left the intelligence bureau, it was in uh, it was in 2005, and that's when negotiations were starting up with North Korea, the six party talks. And uh, I decided that I wanted to move more into the, the policy realm. And uh, you know, the, the, a decision was made amongst the senior officials within that bureau because there was a changeover. That was also because we were moving from first term to second term. That was when John Bolton was moving from the State Department or the the sort of area that I was moving to. to. He was moving to the UN and then uh, Bob Joseph was coming in. And so the decision was made to send me uh, to Beijing. And, and so I was there for those negotiations and uh, they were definitely interesting, and, and you get you get to know a lot about uh, uh, the 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 things that you study and you and you read about uh, when you're there on the ground uh, in Beijing and, and watching all the different uh, delegations and and what they. Uh, but then you know the the you know the Bush administration made a decision that that I certainly didn't agree with, uh, which was uh, really to to try and get a deal at all costs uh, with North Korea. And, uh, you know, they, they reduced the, the leverage that they, they had. And um, throughout the end of that term, uh, there was really a, a focus on trying to get North Korea to comply. But, you know, North Korea has a history of sort of running out the clock uh, as they've done numerous times. And, uh, you know, so I, I did, I started to do less North Korea and added more things to my portfolio and, 
you know, really in 2005, I was, I was there at the, where, where sanctions, which are commonplace now was really sort of developing, not, not the sort of, you know, um, broad based sanctions that, that we saw in the past, but really these targeted sanctions, uh, which I, I then shifted to that. And, and the Obama administration obviously came in with their own, uh, different approach on North Korea and, um, but, uh, you know, I, I also took some, I, I sort of moved to the war college for a year and uh, the national war college and, and took some time on that. So I, I want to ask you about the war college, but, um, take me back to Beijing for a moment. If that was your first time attending sort of international talks, there's obviously a big difference between the studying, the prep work, the tabletop exercises, all the thinking and, and moot courting that goes into planning for and preparing for a, a, a negotiation, and then actually seeing everyone and seeing what their reactions are and kind of hearing from the, them directly. So, what did you? What were some of the things you took away from that experience as lessons learned? Yeah, it was it was it was fascinating. I, I, you know, um, because you have uh, all you know, you have all six parties uh, in the plenary meetings, and then you know you have. Uh, you have your, you know, bilateral meetings happening, and then you have your, your side meetings happening where a lot of the the work is getting done, and uh, you know, but the core problem with the the negotiations, which you know was certainly discovered later, uh, is is essentially the the core issue with North Korea, right? North Korea, and I've written about this extensively. North Korea. The policy is a bipartisan failure. Uh, you know, we can trace it all the way back at least uh, 1994, and you know, uh, it doesn't matter which president is in office, from what party, uh, the policy has failed. North Korea has a nuclear arsenal. That that was the goal was to stop that. Uh, that that has not happened. Uh, you know, the issue to to me, looking back, you know, now. 16 years, if I'm doing math on the fly, right? 16 years later is, you know, this was more focused on certainly getting an interim deal or, or a limited nuclear deal with North Korea. But the core question of have they made a decision? Has North Korea and Kim in particular made a decision to denuclearize? And if the answer is no, um, then, you know, no amount of incentives or convincing are going to get us to that point. And that's, that's been a, as I said, a core issue. Uh, but certainly, you know, seeing negotiations in action and being there uh, is, uh, you know, you're, you're in China and, you know, the Chinese certainly have their own vested interests and, and they wanted an interim deal because, or a limited deal, uh, because that allowed them to sort of move this issue and, you know, off the table. Uh, but yeah, getting uh, you know that early in my career, getting getting a you know a front front seat on not just how the U.S. Uh, does our own negotiating and seeing seeing others and how that how that follows through, but all the different parts of the U.S. government that have different perspectives on the negotiations too, because it wasn't just. Uh, one view on that, uh, and uh, much has been written about that. Uh, and then, you know, taking that and then interacting with other countries, including North Korea. So uh, I want to return to um, the policy failure um, and, and, and kind of probe your thoughts on that. But you just mentioned something that I want to um, pull the thread on, and that is that there are a lot of agencies 
uh, that have equities um, and points of view on this issue, as, as is true across many, many issues. You attended the National War College here in Washington, D.C., and there, I assume, you deepened your understanding of, of military um, expertise and, and uh, point of view. The intelligence community clearly is a, is a player here. Um, you were at the State Department at the time. How do these things sort of fit together? And where are the sources of friction most common? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, part of the reason I went to the National or National War College was, uh, you know, m- much of my career to that point, I, I had not uh, really had much exposure uh, to the military side, either the the civilian part of the Defense Department or or the uniform services. Uh, and so, and, and I had not studied uh, most of the things that we studied, uh, and it was an opportunity to to do that. But uh, but of course, I also got exposure to to many of the the people in the military and the foreign service, many of whom are are still in and, and are be, you know are moving up the ranks uh, accordingly because they were they were uh, amazing people and and great to work with as colleagues at the War College. Uh, you know, I think, um, you know, I think I think your point is a good one in terms of departments and agencies. And I certainly saw that in the North Korea context. I saw that, uh, you know, later in my career last year during the pandemic when I was at the National Security Council, in particular in the Bush administration during which is the part part that I have the most uh, insight into since I was at many of those negotiations, there was also this, uh, this friction within the political, uh, appointees as well in terms of what was the right approach, uh, toward North Korea. Uh, and, and, you know, some of that, uh, some of that friction still plays, plays out. I, I don't think that's just a Republican thing either. Uh, you know, some of that is playing out with Iran now. Uh, it, it, it is the thing that fascinates me about international affairs is that there's, you know, especially or even the internal U, U.S. government uh, approach to these issues. That there, there are going to be at least two sides to to this. Uh, you know, rarely if it's if it's consensus, sometimes you, you know, you have to wonder why it's consensus, but then <laughs> uh, but then it's sort of an obvious thing and it's probably going to be taken care of at a lower level. Uh, but in the case of North Korea, I think, you know, I certainly have what I my own recommended approach, but, you know, that that's others believe that uh, that if you agree to these limited nuclear deals, uh, they that 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 you can establish a relationship with the country and then eventually uh, lead to uh, the 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 sort of bigger deal that you're going for. Um, I, I would say cynically, since that's not my view, I would say cynically that that hasn't worked yet, uh, and I, I haven't heard a single example of where that works. Um, I, I will also say that in most cases, the other side, which which I agree with, is that. You know, you, that, that country has to make this the decision you're looking for. Uh, and, and, and in the case of, you know, North Korea, it's denuclearization. And if they haven't made that decision, even as you're agreeing to a limited deal, then it's unclear how you're going to get them from that point to the the, the end zone line, as, as people like to comment. Uh, and I haven't heard a good uh, 
way to to um, that, that 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 has been explained on that. Yeah. So so let me follow up on that because we want them to make the decision to denuclearize. And presumably, we want to induce them to make that decision. And a lot of different, you know, strategies and tactics have been applied over the years. Sanctions and easement of sanctions, uh, strategic patience and direct engagement, saber rattling and, you know, relationship building uh, through the exchange of letters, which I want to also ask you about. I mean, this is a Gordian knot. You've got more experience uh, than anyone I know on this particular one. So how, you know, other than just waiting for them to, um, you know, come to the conclusion we want them to, what are the inducements that you think have the best chance of succeeding? Well, you know, we know that strategic patience does not work, right? That was the, that was the primarily the, the Obama administration's policy uh, after 2012, when they when they uh, you know attempted to negotiate the Leap Day deal, uh, which was negotiated on Leap Day, um, and you know was certainly doomed from the start when both sides had their own uh, pre- you know press statements, uh, dueling versions of what was agreed to. Uh, if that happens in international negotiation, then whether it's domestic, whether it's a domestic or international issue, you know you've failed essentially. Uh, uh, that that's that's a recipe for disaster. And then you know the Obama administration really pivoted to Iran and and uh, looked at the strategic patience policy. And and you know to their credit, at the end of their administration, I think they realized that 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 was the wrong approach and uh, certainly issued very strong sanctions. But by that time, those are coming in 2016. It's too late. Uh, certainly, as has been reported, President Obama apparently told uh, pres- at that point tres- President-elect Trump that North Korea was the, the biggest issue. So we know strategic patience doesn't work. Uh, I think, you know, we also know uh, after having done this a, a couple of times that uh, getting a n- limited nuclear deal or an arms control deal or, or, or whatever people want to term it without that decision for denuclearization also doesn't work, and so then we're then we're stuck with uh, you know what you know what people don't like to talk about, which is you know what at, at one point during the Trump administration uh, we were going for, which you know depends on what you term it, but big for big or whatever it is. The the challenge, and and, and I will admit that you know the the um, and I've said this a couple of times uh, in other places, but you know. W- when you look at sanctions, uh, thinking through when is the right time to relieve them and, and release the pressure is is not an area that, that we've done a lot of work on. Uh, those of us who are, who are practitioners, both inside and outside of the government, it is certainly, it is the question, right? You're increasing yeah. sanctions, again, not to, not to punish the country. That's not the goal. The goal is to get them into meaningful negotiations. Uh, part of the challenge with North Korea is that the sanctions are at least uh, focused on two key areas, right? One is the programs that are that are that are um, prohibited, right? So your nuclear missile programs and certainly other programs. But then you have this other category of sanctions that are focused on activities, right? So um, both inputs into the programs, but then also 
the the sort of the the financing that goes to those programs, right? So what you have in negotiations, and we certainly saw this during the Trump administration um, when I was in, certainly. You get North Korea to agree to some kind of moratorium, a missile moratorium. So they're not going to do missile launches. They're not going to continue parts of their nuclear program. But that second category still continues, right? So they're they're you know they're selling coal, which is prohibited by the United Nations. Uh, they're sell selling coal to get money to you know put back into their programs. They're buying uh, you know widgets to go into those programs. They're still engaged in proliferation. They have overseas laborers, which provide financing for the regime. Those those are those 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 continue, but the sanctions don't continue. And so that that becomes part of the problem is then you're engaged in negotiations and you sort of you know turning a blind eye. And so those programs are continuing, but. They're not doing a nuclear test, not doing a missile test, certainly important, but that's not the totality of their program. This podcast is brought to you by Wash U at Brookings, executive education for those who work in and with government. Learn the art of handling problems with single courses delivered as live, virtual, or in-person sessions, or with a certificate in public leadership, policy strategy, data, or supply chain. Explore your opportunities with Wash U at Brookings at Olin. Dot W-U-S-T-L dot E-D-U slash seminars. That's O-L-I-N dot W-U-S-T-L dot E-D-U slash seminars. Okay, back to the conversation. I, I want to uh, get back to your time on the National Security Council because it's so interesting. Um, but when you left the State Department, you went uh, to the Treasury Department in an office, and you became the director of the Office of Global Affairs. And this was during President Obama's second term. This is another agency with equities and point of view on international affairs, but not many people realize that this office exists. So can you tell us a bit about it and what you did there? Yeah, Treasury is a, is an interesting place uh, because, you know, before, I guess it's probably like 2005 or, or around that time, uh, you know, that office, that undersecretary was very different. Uh, and then, you know, a, a group of people had had really, which I was not a part of, but a, but a group of people really had the foresight to, you know, think through uh, what was the next wave. Uh, and, and part of that was the financial sanctions I mentioned, uh, but then also, you know, the anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing uh, approach and really built it from the ground up, uh, and many people deserve credit for that. And 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 now, uh, you know, Treasury is included in 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 most, if not all, of the conversations at the National Security Council and on all these particular issues. Uh, but you know, I, I like to I like to explain the office I was in, which was the Office of Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, really along with other parts of the, the, the same area as, as Treasury's National Security Office. Uh, it really, you know, we had we had an undersecretary and, a, and an assistant secretary that, that attended uh, National Security Council meetings and obviously the deputy secretary and the secretary did as well. Uh, but these were these were the that was that was the sort of national security part of it. So it included all of those, you know, the sanctions, the anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing, but then there's also other elements of the the policy that needs to be uh, looked at, uh, and 
some of Treasury's tools uh, fit into that, depending on the subject area. It was definitely a fascinating time to be there. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed my time there, and uh, and you know, it was uh, it's it's different than the State Department. Uh, State Department is this huge, uh, app, you know, apparatus with you know the the Foreign Service and Civil Service, and then you have you know uh, the embassies and and everyone overseas and and treasury has some of that but the the scales you know just just don't don't compare yeah uh, so it's definitely uh, definitely interesting to to be in a different department and, and see that perspective well in in 2016 your career got even more different i imagine when you became a brookings legis fellow and spent a year on capitol hill in the office of senator marco rubio of florida a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. First question for you, why did you decide to pursue a fellowship and, you know, spend that that year on Capitol Hill? Well, you know, similar to the War College uh, experience, uh, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of Capitol Hill experience. Uh, you know, <laughs> a different ex- different form of trench. Right. I, the, ex- <laughs> the only experience I had was, you know, going up there as a briefer, uh, and and answering, you know, you know, not on my behalf, but on my boss's behalf, uh, you know, questions for the record. And you know, I was at a point in my career where, uh, you know, if I didn't do it, then I probably would have never done it. Uh, you know, and 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 uh, you know, someone I, I I knew from the Bush administration uh, was was working for Senator Rubio, and uh, you know, it, it it became a good fit uh, at that time. Of course, Senator Rubio was running for president. Uh, and so, so I started right. my term, my, my, you know, 2016 in January, he's running for president, then he's not, and he's retiring and then he's running for reelection and, and gets reelected. So it was kind of a unique experience and, and being on Capitol Hill, I, I had another friend who I worked with at the state department who was also up there working for uh, Senator Flake. So it was, you know, it was a fascinating time to, to be on Capitol Hill during a presidential election, uh, you know, I, I know it wasn't a it wasn't a normal experience, right? Uh, and certainly a presidential election where uh, there was not uh, there was not an incumbent either, right? So uh, right. definitely a different election uh, to say the least on 2016. Uh, and so uh, yeah, it was an interesting time. Well, as someone who's spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill um, and and some in the White House, most of my time, almost all of my time, was spent on domestic issues. I mean, sometimes there were foreign issues that became very relevant, but by the time that happens, they are at the scale of like the Iraq war or Afghanistan. Um, And the people who practice and kind of specialize in those policy areas tend to be different, right? Foreign policy experts tend to be different from the domestic um, issue experts. But domestic politics and international affairs really are interrelated. So can you talk about what you learned from that perch up on Capitol Hill during a presidential, you know, cycle, no less. Um, you know, what did, what did you gain from being on that side of Pennsylvania Avenue as opposed to being somebody who goes up there to, you know, brief occasionally? Yeah, the, it was it was eye opening the the whole experience. I mean, I, I you know, I, I always recommend it to people, especially if they're in government. Uh, you know, if they're civil servants and they plan on having, you know, a long career and uh, because you, 
and you know this better than me, but you, you just, you can't understand what, what is going on there unless you're, unless you're, you know, part of that club, so to speak, where you're a staffer. Uh, and certainly there were, there were, it, it was great to be up there and, you know, the, the back to the North Korea subject we talked about, you know, uh, the North Korea sanctions bill was, you know, approved overwhelmingly when, when I was up there and, and getting to see that from the gallery was, you know, is a fun part of the, part of the job. But, uh, you know, you also, uh, so, you know, Senator Rubio had a large, I assume large for, for even senators, uh, foreign policy group. Uh, so I was part of that. So I didn't do, um, many domestic issues. I guess the only sort of uh, comparison would be obviously he's a senator from Florida and, uh, you know, the, uh, Western hemisphere issues and Cuba in particular and other issues are, are particularly important to his constituents. And, and so there was certainly that nexus and given my sanctions background, uh, you know, doing that. And one of the only bills I got, uh, that, that I wrote that, that got approved, which is, which is rare, even for a fellow was the extension of the Venezuela sanctions. Uh, and, and so it's like a single line, even though I'd written so much more than that, but, uh, it is what it is. Right. Um, but That's then impressive for only a year, right? Being exactly. there only a year and getting yeah, a accomplishment. Is, you know, yeah, yeah, definitely. It was rare, difficult. rare amongst our, amongst our group of fellows. Uh, you know, I think the other issue is you you see how uh, how Republicans and Democrats react to your boss when he's running for president, then when he's retiring, and then when he's running for re-election. Uh, there were different approaches. Uh, and, okay, and so, oh, wait, so tell me about that. How did people react to him differently in those phases? Well, it was my perception that, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's it, it, politics dictates a lot of these things. And and I, I think there were, uh, you know, there were certain, you know, uh, certain people that were looking at the elections and, uh, you know, uh, whether you co-sponsor something or, or meeting with people. And I mean, of course, he was, you know, he was running when he was running for president, he was running against one of his colleagues. Right. Uh, you know, Ted Cruz was was in the. In, in the mix. Uh, so, you know, that, that, that was the thing that I found the most pa- fascinating across the, you know, I just, I, I mean, I'm a poli- I was a political science major, but you know, this is a different, different kind of political science. The thing that I found fascinating, which seems very obvious now, uh, is just the sort of like, yeah, the Republican and Democrat thing, but then the sort of internal Republican thing was just, uh, it, it was fascinating and it was fascinating and amazing to me. And, uh, you know, as the political science uh, person, I was just, uh, I loved it, you know, seeing all that uh, happening. Oh, for sure. Yeah, th- those uh, kind of the swirls and eddies of politics go pretty deep, right? Uh, you know, within party, within uh, ambition of like, what office are people running for? Within leadership, you know, like it just, it, there's just layers upon layers. Um, you know, I've I've had the good fortune of, of prepping people from the administration to go testify at congressional hearings or meet with members of Congress on various topics. And particularly when it comes to committee hearings, you know, my experience has been that administration witnesses know that they are in for an unfair fight. And they look at, at you know, some of the, people who are going to be questioning them and they think they don't know the subject matter well enough. Uh, They are going to be asking me questions not to uh, shed light on anything, but rather to make a point. And most of these questions are going to be framed in a way that, you know, 
try to get me to make news or at least allow the questioner to sort of flex on me. Now you've been on both sides. <laughs> so what would be your advice uh, to an administration witness who's you know going to be going up in a couple of days to testify on a a controversial topic or at least a topic that is newsworthy enough that there's going to be a hearing on it, how would you advise them to think about it and and prepare? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I will know your facts, right? Like uh, I've seen a couple of people that, uh, and myself included, I've, I've done, I, 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 you know, I, when, I, when I did an intelligence briefing, uh, you know, early in my career, uh, I was putting together the slides and all that. It was for like an all senators briefing. And, uh, you know, I, I was, I had this like thought in the back of my head that someone's going to ask me like how far Yang Beyond, which is in the, the main nuclear facility is from Pyongyang, like the capital of North Korea. But I never, like it was, I don't know why I thought that question would come up and I should have just sort of jotted that down, which probably would have made me feel a lot better. And sure enough, the first question I got as I showed the map of the two and I'm, and I'm like, well, Senator, I, I'm not quite sure. Um, but I, but you know, that's an innocent mistake, which has really no impact. And, and certainly I can get the answer later, but I've seen, you know, plenty of, uh, witnesses in particular who, uh, who, you know, state something, uh, that is not correct and then wind up, you know, wind up what that becomes a snowball, uh, upon itself. I remember that particularly, uh, in a, in a hearing, I think it was in late 2016 on North Korea, uh, and it, and it wound up, uh, you know, it wound up backfiring and it was, you know, it was a, it was a tense exchange after that. Now, part of it could have just been the witness was either mistaken or misspoke or, but, you know, there wasn't, and that's, you know, that's, that's the importance of staffers, right? You know, if, uh, you know, the staff was sitting behind and, and hopefully at some point passed a note, uh, to them, uh, but, you know, congressional hearings, uh, Unless, unless it's a friendly atmosphere or in many cases going to be uh, adversarial. And, you know, I think making sure you're, you're, you're prepared on the, on the, the facts on the ground and, um, you know, but at some point as well, you, you have a narrative that you are, that, that, that your administration uh, believes uh, and is moving forward. Uh, and there are going to be, again, this is, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. Uh, and sometimes it's bipartisan on both sides or, or in bo both ways, right? Uh, that that um, there is going to be an element that is going to disagree with that. And, and I think it's very important to sort of game plan how your response is going to be uh, to that. Uh, but, you know, at some point you just have to uh, be prepared and let it happen. And, and hopefully you answer the right way. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's get to your time in the White House, because in 2018, you became a part of the national security staff. And over the course of the th your three years there, just about, you served as the director for North Korea and ultimately as the deputy assistant to the president and senior director for counterproliferation and biodefense. You arrived at a really unique time in the U.S.-North Korean relationship. In the 18 months before you arrived, as I understand it, um, President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un had traded 
insults and threats. This is everything from Little Rocket Man to the North Koreans calling President Trump a mentally deranged dotard, threats of total destruction. Um, But then there had been an in-person meeting in Singapore uh, where the two countries kind of laid out their goals um, for reaching a lasting and stable peace that included complete denuclearization. Then you arrived at the NSC one month after the Singapore meeting. So that that I wanted to give that history uh, for our listeners just so when you entered, there had been some low times and now some hopefulness. So can you can you talk about that environment and you know without uh, discussing anything that's classified, obviously, uh, what you were working towards and with what you know other elements within the White House to effectuate, some of the things that had been discussed in Singapore. Yeah, and before that, I I, I had left the federal government, right? I, I in December of 2016, uh, I um, even though you know I'm, I served in a Republican administration now, I, I left government. Uh, I, I was a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where I am now, I think a DC think tank, uh, and. Uh, I worked on North Korea. That was my that was my focus the entire time, and so all uh-huh. of those things that you're that, that you mentioned happening from from essentially December 2016 through July of uh, uh, 2018 when I when I returned to government, uh, yeah, I, it was uh, it was definitely an interesting time. I you know I, I you know speaking of testimonies, you know I testified before Congress a couple of times on on both sides, and uh, you know Senate and the House and. You know, I, the, the point I was conveying is that in those initial, while, while they might have seemed scary to some people or over the top to, to others, uh, they, they were, you know, the, the, the Trump administration's approach was building the leverage that was necessary uh, for the, to get meaningful negotiations. Now, I, you know, I think... I think much of that leverage was squandered by by not continuing the the pressure, uh, and I say that as a person who was hired to work on the pressure campaign. Um, but uh, you know, I, I for me personally, I, I I did not expect to return to government. Certainly not as soon as I did. Um, but uh, you know, a, a phone call, email from from uh from matt pottinger was uh you know and and certainly my my dedication to to serving the country uh uh convinced me otherwise and 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 yeah the singapore summit happens and uh you know i and then uh, the that the thing that happened sort of before that you know personnel is is part of the process right uh mcmaster was you know was his term ended and then john bolton took over uh, so that was certainly, you know, uh, you know, he gets to make his own decisions on personnel. And so I was sort of at the tail end of that. Uh, and, and um, you know, I, I decided to go back in. I, I, I had no illusions to the fact that uh, we might get to a point where we're reducing pressure. Um, but I, 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 I felt like I wanted to be on the inside making the arguments uh, that that shouldn't happen. And, and certainly I was able to, but, uh, you know, and people could see how much uh, pressure we we put on North Korea as evidence of uh, where, where I fell on those arguments or whether those were convincing. Uh, but, you know, just, just as when, you know, the Bush administration, when President Bush decided to, 
you know, remove North Korea from the Trading with the Enemy Act, uh, and and when he decided to to do other things after we discovered that North Korea had built a nuclear reactor in Syria, uh, you know, the president the president calls, you, you know, he's he calls the shots, right? It's not, you know, it's not unique to President Trump, uh, and when you're dealing with these kinds of issues where they are at the presidential level. Uh, you know, he makes those decisions. And, and then, you know, the, the hope that you have, which, you know, working at the National Security Council, you certainly do on many of those issues is that you can be part of that process uh, and that, you know, the, the alternatives are presented and then those decisions are made. Uh, but, you know, it's certainly a unique time. I was there from July 2018 to July 2019 as the director for North Korea and definitely an interesting time uh, to be there. Well, one of the things that you know have have broken through the public consciousness um, in terms of unique and interesting um, are the letters that were exchanged between um, President Trump and uh, the North Korean leader. These letters seemed to have from you know the the cheap seats where I sit a substantial impact on the process. I mean, here are the two leaders kind of communicating directly with one another. Um, when a letter was received, you know, what is the impact of that letter um, within the, the policymaking circle that surrounds the president? Well, you know, the, uh, you hit it on the head, which is, you know, this is leader level communication, uh, something that you know, is rare when it comes to North Korea. And when you're dealing with a country where, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un, the, the the leader of that country makes the decisions uh, in that country and you're trying to convince him uh, to denuclearize, uh, having a pres- the ability of the president to be able to convey that, that it, you know, the letters in my mind go hand in hand with the summits uh, and have, be, you know, the, the ability for the president of the United States the sitting president, because of course, you know, President Clinton, uh, tra- you know, there, there have been other former presidents uh, who have engaged with North Korea leaders. And, and certainly I don't want to dismiss that. That's important. But it's different than the sitting president of the United States sitting across from the North Korean leader and be able being able to describe, OK, this is what you know, this is what denuclearization looks like to us uh, and then and then essentially have a negotiation or attempt to have a negotiation. Uh, and, you know, that was sort of the run up to Hanoi. And, and the letters are an important part of that when you're when you're trying to cut through whatever elements of the bureaucracy uh, in North Korea. Uh, and, you know, they I think they it, I, you know, I think that that having that kind of leader level or senior level conversation with North Korea is going to be important and impactful, even if we get back to negotiations, regardless of whether it's this administration or future administrations. Anthony, I'm, I'm starting to run out of time. So I'm, I'm going to go to some questions that I like to ask of all of my guests, a couple of recurring segments. One is called In the Vault. Can you tell me about a time you made a mistake and what you learned from it? Sure. I, you know, I, I will, uh, I will, I won't speak in specifics, but certainly when I was an intelligence analyst, uh, you know, I, I, I had a circumstance where, uh, I, I was convinced of something, uh, which, you know, as I, as I, 
as I know now, uh, should have been a, a red flag danger warning uh, that, you know, because you're, you know, when you're dealing with intelligence as a policymaker or, or an intelligence analyst, you're dealing with, uh, you know, you're always dealing with less than 100% of information. And in many cases, especially in North Korea, the, the percentage is quite low. Uh, and so, you know, in terms of something that North Korea wound up doing, uh, I was, you know, I was convinced they wouldn't do that. Uh, and it turned out that they did. And, and it reminded me, um, both while I was still an intelligence analyst and then when I became a policymaker and, you know, all the way up through the National Security Council when I was a senior director, I, I was always very, when, whenever uh, an intelligence analyst would tell me that they were very convinced of something, you know, I would I would ask the simple question of, but you don't, I mean, we don't have the totality of every piece of information like i get that you're that you're convinced that you have this sources or that sources or this kind of insight but we just we 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 operate in a environment where we have imperfect information incomplete information uh we have both of those and you have to make those decisions so i i, I certainly i commend the desire to be uh confident in in an assessment but i think we have to uh, i think we have to give some some of that uh that slack to to be wrong and prepare in case we are wrong okay last question for you if i were able to build on the national mall a hall of fame to staffers and commission some bronze busts of people and put them in there, who would you nominate of all the many staffers who you've worked with across numerous federal agencies and in the White House and on Capitol Hill, who would you nominate to put in the Staffer Hall of Fame? Well, mine is a more recent, uh, you know, is 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 Matt Pottinger, uh, who who you know was a staffer, uh, certainly a senior staffer. Uh, you know, I think uh, certainly there were many people who contributed to it, but but he largely drove the change in our U.S.-China relationship or the U.S.-China policy, uh, something that continues even in this administration. Uh, you know, it's it, if you you know if you think back, you know, five years ago. Uh, you know the, the approach to China was very different, and, and again, that's not a, that's not a criticism of the Obama administration. There were plenty of Republicans who were uh, advocating that different approach as well, and certainly did throughout the Obama administration, but throughout the Bush administration, having a different approach on China, uh, one that was less uh, less confrontational to the many uh, places where the Chinese uh, are. Are um, you know very aggressive and and we're, we're we were a lot more um, reserved in our responses, uh, but that that was a sea change. I mean, certainly you know Matt started as the senior director for Asia and then became deputy national security advisor, uh, and as I said, there were many people. But being being the director for North Korea and being in the Asia directorate and and watching many of my colleagues in the Asia directorate, I, I came in sort of as, a, a, you know, jumping on a moving train, right, in mid, you know, 2018, as the administration is already doing all these other things. But to uh, be able to see that in action was uh, was was an amazing, uh, an amazing shift in U.S. policy happening in real time. And as I said, it's, you know, of course, Biden is going to do, do things differently. And uh, but, you know, the core part of that that effort, and I think when we see a national security strategy from this administration, uh, you know, we've seen the interim one, but I think there'll be largely uh, some elements that, that remain the same throughout. And I, I think that's an important uh, part of this going forward. 
Yeah, I think you're undoubtedly right. Anthony, I wish I had more time to talk with you because there are so many topics and so much about your experience that I could really dive into for another three hours. Um, let me just conclude by saying thank you uh, for your service uh, to the country and for all of the thoughtfulness and insights uh, that you shared with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a great conversation. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.